ladies and gentlemen, we're going to take you all the way down in New Orleans this time. It's Wednesday, and that means one thing, another edition of the Dome Patrol on Hard to Paint. And I'm joined, as usual, by my friend, my brother, the one and only Check Verified, Ross Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> hey, brother, glad to be back here with you, man, as always. We're going to get you that Check Verify here soon, too. It's going to come soon. through. Soon. It's going to come through. Soon. <laughs> um, before we get into the Saints, there was something that we talked about last week on the radio when... Mm-hmm. Um, you met with me on 103.7, and we were talking about race norming in the NFL. And since then, there's been nothing about that conversation. There's been nothing in the news about this issue. And we've seen other journalists who are outside of the mainstream mm-hmm. comment and wonder where that story went. And for people who are not aware what the NFL was doing with its concussion settlements and its uh, um, mental um, brain damage settlements uh, was practicing what's called race norming, where they were decreasing the value, the initial um, value of black intelligence, assuming that black players were starting from a lower cognitive baseline than every other group, not just whites, across the board. So it was costing thousands, thousands of, of athletes the opportunity to get their due um, monies from their injuries sustained playing football, it was making them not only invalid, like their claims, but it was also diminishing their, their, the claims who, of people who did get them. Uh, so they right. were not getting their money. Since that story broke, there was a, a brief blip of attention for it. And now it's gone completely back under the radar. And I'm certainly that's hap- the NFL is happy about that. Sure. But for the players, the families, and even the current players who are still involved in this, who still play in this system, and the NFLPA, which is supposed to be looking out for these players, the silence is deafening. Big time. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, you saw the Associated Press pick it up. And really, like you mentioned, none of these other mainstream outlets picked it up. I didn't see any conversation about this on anything that, you know, you'd be flipping through your cable channels and finding or, you know, some of the popular websites that you'll visit and everything like there's no deeper conversation on this. Now, there was a follow up to it. And we did learn that these players that are currently involved in the midst of all this will get an opportunity to be able to address the prosecuting or not prosecuting, but the attorneys that are a part of all this, the uh, the NFLPA attorneys as well. And so I think that, you know, that that is another positive. That is another plus. But you have to wonder if that's just going to, you know, not get any attention, just like the the fact that the NFL was doing this in the first place. And and again, that's not just limited to the NFL. Right. Like this is a medical industry issue. Mm-hmm. Like this was a, a this was a standards and practice that was developed within the medical industry and that the NFL, you know, chose to abide by. This isn't something that the NFL just said, oh, we're going to do it this way. Right. And like this is, this is a and right. right. And then they fought for it. Thing. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's the other part of it, right, is that you look at this this idea and just to just to put it in even plainer terms, this basically says that, David, if you and I go out on the field and we suffer a brain injury, the general consensus under race norming is that we started off with that brain injury effectively, not that it was caused by the game, not that it was caused by the the, the circumstances of the game, but because our cognitive function was already so low that's that's on us like we were just born that way and that the game had absolutely no effect on it and so because of that we would be denied coverage we'd be denied accessibility to health insurance to being able to you know make sure that what we have seen the unfortunate circumstances the unfortunate situations that many of these you know players post their careers have been subject to we would just fall in line to another situation much like that as opposed to getting the help and care that's necessary so now you're going to have these conversations in you know for for which by the way is also in and of itself 
probably slightly traumatic for the players that are a part of this that are presently in the thick of all of this trying to fight for their coverage. They're spending more time fighting to get the opportunity to be covered than they are actually being able to spend getting treated for their injuries. And that is an issue because we know the legal process can draw on long and longer. And so this is something that probably still affects players in the future coming out of the game later on that it is going to affect anyone that's presently out of the game and fighting for this. So it'll be an unfortunate story that will tell years down the line that the players that were fighting for this, the former players that were fighting for this, never got the opportunity to take advantage of it, but did lay the path for players in the uh, future to not be subject to this discriminatory practice. And that's exactly what it is. And as you mentioned, it's hyper-discriminatory in that there's not a bunch of different you know, they call it race norming, but really it's kind of like black norming more than anything else to where they took this one race and said they are less than, they are three-fifths, they are this, that, and the other, all the things we've experienced throughout our history and throughout our time. And they, you know, did this in such a way that it, uh, I, I can't really even say disproportionately affected because they were the only ones that had the ability to be affected, yes. those black players, by this type of decision-making by, by these standards. Exactly. Because we saw so many times, it's not just that the NFL had it in place, it's that they went back and reviewed cases where people were given awards and said, no, you didn't apply the race norming, you need to drop their score back, and then those people would become ineligible for those benefits. So the NFL was actively pursuing to make sure that people didn't get paid. And that's been part of this whole thing from the injury settlement from the beginning in the ways that the NFL has tried to make sure that they didn't pay money to people. So it's not really been a settlement. It's still a negotiation with the NFL to get these dollars. The dollars exist in a place, in a fictional place, but they're not being spent in the way, in the manner in which you would think ordinarily that a settlement would be distributed. This review case the review side of this is still very heavily weighted towards the NFL and not the players. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. This is this is something that's going to go on for a long time. This is going to be a very long conversation. And the as you mentioned, the silence around it tells you everything you need to know about the priorities of some national media outlets, as well as the priorities of the NFL itself, who want to keep things like this out of the spotlight and quiet. And I think that there is something to be said here in that we're also in the midst of a time right now where the medical industry is looked at as an industry of heroes because we're coming out of a pandemic. And I don't doubt that that part of all of this, which is all very true and very valid for the work that these people have done over the course of the last 16 months. But I do think that a part of that ends up maybe shading a little bit of how we look at an issue like this, which would bring a derogatory or at least bring at least a little bit of criticism toward the medical industry. But I think we have to be okay with doing both. We can celebrate the individuals who have put their life on the line to save people and do everything that they can to advance medical practice, particularly over the last 16 months, while also looking at what still needs to be addressed and still needs to be improved. And that's what we fail so often at here in America is having a dual conversation. Right. Like when we go back to the whole thing about patriotism, when people say, well, if you about insulting the flag, right. I can respect the sacrifice of soldiers who have fought for our country and still say there's stuff wrong with my country. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and that's what this is. I can respect the fact that there are most medical professionals are doing an ethical and, and reasonable job, but that there are practices within that industry that are discriminatory, that are biased. And we see it not only with dealing with these athletes and that whether it's no matter what the level of care is, we can find issues of racial discrimination um, in how black people in, in particular are treated. And so we have to keep shining light on this. And it's it, it's hard when you have a par- partner with a lot of these media outlets like an ESPN or Fox or whomever, as powerful as, as the NFL, when you need them to provide you with this constant programming and to give you this, this cachet, because having mm-hmm. the NFL in and of itself is cachet for networks and you don't wanna upset the apple cart. And you can't go around saying that the NFL has a, has bigoted practices and then expect to get money from the NFL. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Um, to transition, and there's no ever, oh, look, I don't care if it's an easy transition. We just move on to the next thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, moving back to the Saints, many camps have started um, mm-hmm. across the league. Saints, no different. And the first question that, that comes about is because Drew Brees is not there. This first see, um, training camp, 
process that we'll be entering without Drew Brees in 16 years. And the leadership question. I don't think that question is as hard to fill as people think. Mm-hmm. Not, and it's not to discredit Drew Brees. But as we've seen before, when Drew was injured and was unavailable, and we saw DeMario Davis step into that void, um, we've seen, I think that there are, Alvin Kamara is a guy who can step into that void. Michael Thomas, in a way, because of his professionalism, the way he conducts himself, can step into that void. I think Jameis Winston is a natural uh, person who likes to step out in front and be a leader. I think that there are a lot of leaders on this roster currently. Um, it may be different in how the style goes, but I don't think it'll be less effective this offseason. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, you know, one of the questions that I hope to be able to ask Mario Davis is if he's going to continue doing the the pregame huddles uh, with everyone and, and sort of doing that that sort of pregame sort of pep moment with everybody, because I, I'm curious to know if that is going to be something that he takes on and continues to lead just like he did when Drew Brees you know, was out and was not available. Uh, and, and I think that, you know, you hear some of the plays like Zach Bond talked about Demario Davis yesterday, that he's a leader on and off the field. And that sometimes during, you know, film study and everything like that, he just looks over at him and watches him, you know, because of the how intently he's learning and how open he is in the midst of being as successful as he is and as good a player as he is, how intent he is on making sure that the people around him feel an open door to come in and continue to gather information from him and, and, you know, how he continues to shepherd people along. And we've seen that type of leadership there. We've seen leadership along the defensive line from Cam Jordan. We've seen leadership over on the offensive side with guys like Teron Armstead, for instance. I mean, there's enough of these leaders around that you fill the shoes of Drew Brees. Like Drew Brees did not lead this team by himself, right? Like every unit has a leader. Drew Brees played a large role, obviously. Like there's absolutely no there's absolutely no denying that. But you put a quarterback in that situation, particularly one that has the experience of leading a team, which both of these quarterbacks have experience leading either a team in in uh Jameis Winston's case, he did it for 5 years, or leading the team, right? The actual players. So there's a little bit more potential commerce involved in that, even though it was for a shorter period of time with Taysom Hill, but he actually led this unit and led this unit to wins. So I think that the leadership factor will be a part of the, you know, evaluation of the future quarterback in New Orleans, but it's also a top-down structure to where it doesn't start at the quarterback, right? It starts at the coaches. It starts at Sean Payton. And so I think no matter what, you'll have all of that leadership there and as a part of it. Yeah, I mean, let's take Tampa Bay, for example, and everyone will give Tom Brady all the credit um, for changing whatever Tampa's culture was there. But that's another team that had veterans at different spots that had leaders who were willing to step up on the defensive end in particular and had a number of guys who, who you can't just it's never on one person. There has right. to be a singular voice in certain circumstances. Yes, of course. Um, but it's never the leadership of a team, any great team. That's why when we do these interviews, when you see NFL films, they don't just talk to the quarterback. Right. <laughs> they like if that was the only leader, they, they would just talk to the quarterback. But they're right. in there with the guys who really have the pulse of the team. In the 80s, it wasn't just Joe Montana. It was Ronnie Lott. It was mm-hmm. Keena Turner. It was those kind of guys. You know, I mean, in Dallas, it wasn't just Troy Aikman. It was on Michael Irvin. It was on Ken mm-hmm. Norton. It was on, uh, you know, all Darren Woodson. There were just, there right. were leaders across the board. And I think the Saints are stocked in that regard with veteran leadership. Um, mm-hmm. To transition to that quarterback battle, there has been some criticism that the Saints have not named uh, James Winston as a starter going into camp. I think I understand why he has not been named the starter today, but I don't think that that lingers too long. Um, I think this is in deference to Sean and his relationship with Taysom. Um, but he, even Sean Payton knows I can't go midway through camp without deciding my starter. I have to operate as if one of these guys is the starter and prepare the other. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think that that's just, there's going to be a starter name by the time we really get to camp. It's interesting. Uh, yeah. And, and, and Taysom Hill talked about that a bit yesterday. He talked a bit about how, you know, the sooner that a quarterback is named, 
the quicker you can tailor the offense, you know, the, the quicker you can get started tailoring the offense to them. And he talked about being, you know, super supportive of Jameis, Jameis being super supportive of him. And so it has been an interesting competition already, right? Because we've been sort of watching the off-field competition happen. Now, I think some of the on-field competition has to happen because there's still so much you have to learn about Taysom mm-hmm. Hill, right? Can he utilize Alvin Kamara at the backfield? Has he developed a touch pass? Does he grasp the two-minute drill? Is he able to run a hurry-up offense? All those things are still questions that you have to see answered. And for both of them, full field reads, decision making, all these things also have to be proven. And I think that with Jameis Winston, yes, you got to see some of the improvement of him throughout practice throughout the 2020 season. But I do think that there's a whole nother merit you have to hold him to going into 2021. And so I honestly wouldn't be surprised if they waited waited quite a while uh, before actually naming a quarterback because there is some truth to the fact that the offense would be tailored to whomever that quarterback is going to be. But the basic ideas and principles and in terms of what's important, like this is still a Sean Payton offense, Mm -hmm. regardless of who is under center, right? It's just that maybe you see a few more downfield shots with Jameis Winston and you see with Taysom Hill and you see more designed runs and you see more uh, opportunities to bail out of plays with Taysom Hill. Yeah, exactly. You know, and utilizing all that. But I think with both of them, you're going to see play action use. You're going to see boot action use. You're going to see, you know, quick passing game, utilizing the run game to set up the pass, uh, you know, a a focus on limiting turnovers, making smart choices, all of that stuff like that's those are all foundational tenets to a Sean Payton offense. This blend Air Coriel slash West Coast offense, which we've seen more West Coast of than Air Coriel over the past couple of seasons. Now, all of a sudden, you know, some of those routes extend 15, 16 yards downfield before their breaks as opposed to seven or eight. And so I think that, you know, with all of that, I wouldn't be surprised if they really take their time. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they won't name a starter until before week one. But I think that they should, you know, I think they'll take their time making that decision. Yeah, I, I think it, it. once you get into camp and as you get towards those preseason games, I think that's when you'll start to see that definition because you want to have some cohesion behind your starter mm-hmm. because there is a shorter preseason. You only got three weeks, so we can't really right. have it be that tight. Um, but I think, yeah, Sean Payton is going to take his time, and he needs to because he has not seen enough reps of either one of these guys, right? Um, especially with this new way he's going to be running this offense. Certainly he's, if, if Taysom finishes as the second quarterback, as we all think there's all the Taysom package is always there, right? There are 10 to 15 plays that he's always going to have in stock for Taysom at quarterback. If he needs to pull those out and he's going to have the other packages as well for him at wide receiver, running back, whatever. So those will still be in place. But I think for Jameis, the thing is Jameis is really working more and more about the fundamentals of his game and then developing that relationship because I think he knows he's still the outsider. He's still in some ways the outsider, even though he had a great relationship in that locker room. Taysom has the in-house, you know, lead. He's been mm-hmm. there. He has a stronger relationship with Sean Payton just by nature um, at this point. So I think that ta- that that this is a great opportunity for Jameis almost to act like a college freshman again and win yeah. your lineup and go up and down that roster, get to know those guys and say, hey, you know, I can put you in a position to win. Not campaign, but it is that. In a lot of ways, a quarterback is campaigning in that locker room, not against the other guy, but to get the trust of the rest of that offensive unit. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I think that the biggest, the, I think the biggest timeline to watch is, you know, is a starting quarterback named before the preseason? Or does, you know, a half of a preseason game go to Jameis, a half of a preseason go to, to Taysom to sort of help see this at full speed a little bit and everything? And then how much leeway do you get with that? Do you go into the second preseason game and do the same thing? That's where I'll be most interested to see where this goes. But for right now, I mean, again, you know, you've got Sean Payton who isn't going to start writing up a playbook when a quarterback is announced. He's, <laughs> you know, he, he's he's got everything that he needs already and has had the entire offseason to work on anything that he felt he needs to, needed to specify or further detail. You know, I mean, he's been a play caller since he was with the Giants and everything. So he has his offense. It's not like, oh, well, there's no offense in the building until a quarterback is selected. Then all of a sudden he has to write up a playbook. It's not going to be, you know, that type of a situation. So I think it's going to be a fun battle to watch, though. And, you know, the more that we hear from both Jameis and Taysom, it just gets more and more intriguing. And I think we'll see familiar things for both of them. You know, they are both Mm -hmm. asked to do. And I think there will be times when there are Jameis 
things that take spe- uh, specific advantage of Jameis's talents, and there are things that take specific advantage of Taysom's talents during the preseason, and uh, you know during this this period mm-hmm. because they do have some you know very different skills at, at certain levels, and and I think that you want to be able to see if I'm going to maximize them both, I can't make them both try to do the exact same things. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that you know the the important part about that too is to acknowledge that. If Jameis wins the starting role, it doesn't mean that you're never going to see Taysom under center. You're going like, you're to still, see Taysom. Yeah, yeah. Like you'll still see that, particularly in the red zone. Like they love utilizing him in the red zone, and rightfully so. He's extremely effective in the red zone. He's also extremely effective on third down too. And so I think if you look at both of those, you know, you look at what Taysom Hill brings. It, it's not one of those things where you're just not going to see him at quarterback at any point if Jameis wins. So all of that practice that you would put into that, it's not that it would go to waste. It would just be further specialized. Right. And and again, his value stays high because you still have a tight end room that is not stocked with veterans. Right. And um, and he has a, an important role that he can play at, at that spot. Uh, and certainly, again, as you said, coming out of the backfield and, and doing all the other things that he does, there's no way, no matter what happens, that Taysom doesn't see the field. So people don't have to right. worry about that. In that tight end room, though, Jawan Johnson is now making an appearance and converting from wide receiver. How big of a move is that? And do you think that Juwan can flourish in that role? I think it's a great move for for Juwan Johnson. Um, When he signed as an undrafted free agent last year, one of the first things that I talked about with him was that he should transfer to tight end. And it doesn't have anything to do with him not being athletic or, or anything like that. It's just that the, I mean, the guy's six foot four, two hundred and thirty pounds, so he could probably bulk up a little bit in the weight side. But you want to do so. And, and I've had people ask me, "What does that mean? Ten pounds, twenty pounds?" And it, it varies because there's a delicate balance you have to you have to walk. Can you put on the weight and maintain your speed, maintain your short area quickness, maintain the things that will make you special at the tight end position in particular, beyond just your size? So it's a it's a balance that you have to. So there's no specific specific number that he should try to bulk up or anything like that. It's just how much can you bulk up and maintain what it is that you bring specifically to that position. You know, he's not a he he's a big bodied guy, but he struggled in the contested catch realm. He has. I mean, he only caught 33% of contested catches his final season at uh, Penn State, uh, or excuse me, at Oregon. Uh, he only, I think he was targeted in five, five or four, oh, four, four different contested catch situations last year and caught one of those passes. I mean, that's not where he wins. He wins by overpowering the person in front of him before the ball arrives. And so if you put him at the tight end position, it allows him to be able to do that. It puts him in a position to where he gets to be one of those tight ends that's too big for corners, but too fast for linebackers with four, five, eight speed. He has an, and a long stride on top of that. So he has a lot of tools that would make him really effective at the tight end position as a pass catcher, but he's also an outstanding run blocker as well. And we saw the Saints last year use Traquan Smith in line a lot mm-hmm. as a block up against the line of scrimmage. And I think that if your intent moving forward is going to be to have Traquan Smith potentially even have the Z role, the flanker role outside opposite Michael Thomas, then you might want that extra body that can be there as a blocking tight end, but can also serve in the as a pass catcher with wide receiver ability. Juwan Johnson's a natural fit. Do you think he has maybe that Shannon Sharp? Not you know, look, I'm not comparing to a of Hall course. of Fame in that regard, but you know, Shannon was a wide receiver coming out of, of college um, and bulked himself up to about a 245, 255 range uh, and and wasn't a great blocker when he first started. Mm-hmm. Um, figured out how to block, but it, he was the monster in that mid-range area. He just was able yeah. to dominate in those 15-yard area going across the field and you just couldn't deal with him um, to have another weapon like that because that's – honestly, that's a lot of what Taysom has been. Mm-hmm. But in a less disciplined way, because he's, right. he's not a natural tight end um, and not a natural route runner. But if you can find another guy like that, that is a very interesting weapon to have. Absolutely. Yeah. And you can utilize him in such a way, you know, in those same ways that you saw Shannon Sharp use. So I think like the usage comparison is absolutely mm-hmm. spot on because you can utilize him over the middle of the field. Um, you know, have him run those arrow routes to where he, you know, comes out in a spray release to the outside, but then cuts back in sort of exactly what you see the angle routes from uh, Alvin Kamara out the backfield, but doing it from the tight end position. You can see all of that come through. You can see the the angle routes that um, 
like the one that Adam Troutman ran last year against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers where he faked the slant inside and then took the out. I mean, I think you would see all of that same type of ability from Juwan Johnson, who has the ability in terms of his three cone and some of the measurements that he has in terms of short area quickness. He's able to produce in those tight spaces like that and in those tight windows in terms of his ability to get open. So I do think that that's absolutely a way that he could be utilized in addition to his blocking. That's where he varies from Shannon Sharp a bit is that he's sort of has to develop the other way. He kind of has to develop as a pass catcher, even though he was a wide receiver first, he has some things to do to prove a little bit more as a pass catcher than he does as a blocker at this point. Would he, would he also be a candidate to be utilized on special teams? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, you have you have that speed and that size, but I also know that he he does have, you know, a history of injuries and everything. And so I think, you know, potentially that might factor into a decision to where if he's going to serve a larger role on at at the tight end position than previously expected or or than currently expected, then you might not see them jeopardize him by putting him out at tight end or excuse me, in in special teams. But I think that he's a good candidate for the third tight end on the roster. And Mm -hmm. for the Saints, that tight end sees the field and they get snaps. Absolutely. Um, let's talk about two other players, second year guys, Cesar Ruiz. It looks like he's not going to be competing for that center spot. He's going to be uh, over at the right guard position. I don't think that's a disappointment per se, because Eric McCoy did a fantastic job as center in these last two seasons. He's been as good as they could have imagined when they drafted him. Um, yeah, the move Cesar Ruiz to right guard. Do you think that's a failure for the Saints or do you feel like, hey, look, we're going to we want to get our best players on the field. However, we have to do it. And this is our way to get Caesar on the field. I think the way that you just framed that is exactly is exactly right. I mean, look, Caesar Ruiz has five five oh eight speed, so he could still be a contributor from the guard position as a pulling guard and to get outside on outside zones and everything. It's not going to be a Larry Warford situation to where he's not able to run the zone concepts effectively that the Saints want to call. Cesar Ruiz is going to be fine there. He understands because of his experience as a center, he understands protections. He understands packages and rotations and techniques being used by defensive linemen. I mean, he he understands all of that and he's able to look at a defense and know where the pressure is coming from, which I think will, will help him sort of be maybe a step ahead at certain times and things like that. So I, I do think that, you know, him developing at the right guard position is probably what's best for the Saints at this point. I was a Big proponent of the idea of him moving to center but you know just seeing how how well Eric McCoy has performed over those first two years like you mentioned and also keeping in mind that moving Cesar Ruiz to center doesn't just affect Cesar Ruiz it affects Eric McCoy right because Eric McCoy played just about as much right guard in college as Cesar Ruiz did which is not very much uh and and that also adversely or you know or in addition affects Ryan Ramchek you know in terms of how the person that's playing next to him performs and so I think that you know if Cesar Ruiz can get comfortable at the guard position which he said is his focus right now I think that might be the best best path forward for the Saints on the offensive line are are, are we are the Saints as high on Ruiz as they were when they took him? Do they feel like this is a, a good position for them to be in, or is it a position of necessity now? No, I think they feel like this is a good good spot for him. As long as he pans out there, I mean, you know, there's still a lot of questions to answer, and we still have to see what his production is going to be a couple years down the line. But, you know, if you draft somebody, you draft a center in the first round, and then he becomes your starting right guard for, you know, 10 years, you're fine with that. Like, there's, you know, there's nothing, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that just because he doesn't play center in, in particular, right? And, you know, the transition of going from center to guard is easier than the transition of going from guard to center. And so I think that that works in his advantage as well. So I think that, you know, if Cesar Reese pans out at the right guard spot, I think that that's a win for New Orleans. Another player changing position, Zach Bond, um, going to be playing more weak side linebacker now. Mm-hmm. Um, how does that impact Zach and his approach to the game? I think he seems excited based on what I've seen about the opportunity to, to, to rush from that side. What do, what do you see this as uh, for Zach? Yeah, I think it's a, I think it's the ideal situation for him and the ideal situation for New Orleans. And I'll, I'll give a, a shout out to Nick Underhill, who is the one that you know got that response from from Zach Bond. I don't I wasn't in the offensive room. I was in the defensive room because you know I like defense. And I'll but, uh, Nick. We yeah. love you, Nick. Yeah, for real. Uh, I wasn't in the offensive room, so I don't know who got the uh, the the question for Caesar Ruiz, the answer out of Caesar Ruiz, but obviously credit to them as well. But I mean, these these are are big things because these are big questions. These are early answers to big questions 
going into camp. And, uh, you know, so to get a glimpse already that, hey, Cesar Ruiz is focusing on the guard spot and then Zach Bond is focusing on the Will linebacker spot, that's meaningful this early in the season here, you know, as we record on June 9th. And so, I, and to get those answers on June 8th, like that's that's great because now you can track that and, and, and sort of see that throughout camp and how that's how that's uh, progressing. But for Zach Bond, I just, I don't think Zach Bond was going to be a very effective edge rusher in the NFL at his size. I, I just, there aren't many you know, smaller edge rushers that are competing at the NFL level and are consistently winning anymore. I mean, you know, and and particularly if you look at the New Orleans Saints and the way that they look at edge rushers, they want six foot five, six foot six big guys that because they don't go for finesse off the defensive line. Jeff Ireland said this in his interview with Jeff Duncan over at the the Athletic. They want defensive linemen that will take a tackle and push them into the lap of a quarterback. And we see Cam Jordan do that once or twice every season. And that's that's what it is that they want. So Zach Bond also didn't really fit the mold of what the Saints wanted as a, as a pass rusher either. And so moving him to off-ball linebacker puts him in a position where he can thrive a bit more and fits with the New Orleans Saints. We talk about this all the time. There's a clear vision and there's a clear means of trying to put a, a player in the best position to succeed on this team. That's what the Saints focus on. They don't have binders and binders of here's what you do at your position. They don't go about it that way. They bring in folks that have the potential to fill a role or that can grow into a role or whatever, and then they operate under their best skill set and their best circumstances. And so they're trying to do that with Zach Bomber making him a weak side linebacker. The good thing is that you get him the opportunity there to work in space. Every time you saw Demario Davis there, they blitzed Demario Davis quite a bit, so he'll still be able to rush the passer from the second level, sugaring the A-gap, those double A-gap pressures that they like to do on third down, in particular with three down linemen. So I think all of that stuff will still be there for him. But now also getting the opportunity to develop as a coverage guy in man coverage, which takes I don't want to say it doesn't take instincts, but it takes a little bit less instinct than zone coverage does. Like zone coverage is almost entirely instinct and recognition and your ability and anticipation. to yeah. and anticipation, right? And your ability, your ability to be able to react timely or even ahead of a play. And so I think that, you know, you rely on instincts a lot more in zone coverage, at least in my experience. Whereas in man coverage, it's stop that guy from catching the ball, right? And so you have an assignment and then you follow through with that assignment. And I think that that could work well for Zach Bond because he doesn't have to develop a whole new, you know, list of instincts. Although he had good instincts as a pass rusher. So we'll see what he can learn with experience at the will linebacker position. I don't know that that makes him a starter in this offense because that might still be Demario Davis's role, in which case he would back up. Demario Davis, and then maybe Pete Werner plays Mike or something along that. Otherwise, if they plan to move Demario Davis to Mike, because remember they, you know, a lot of nickel packages, two linebacker right. sets, fewer Sam linebackers available during that. Um, if they move Demario Davis to Mike and then utilize Pete Werner or Zach Bond at will, then you have another camp battle to watch. And the one thing that I really like about this is because in a lot of situations where you see players in their second year getting moved and things like that, you think, well, the, the organization is losing confidence in this person. But I think when sure. you keep going mm -hmm. back to the idea that the Saints are a fluid organization, they look at you, they brought you in for one reason, then they keep evaluating you and saying, okay, maybe you're better over here. And we've got some things that we can do with you over here. Even if it's in a limited capacity, you will be extremely effective in this. For 10 plays a game, I can get this out of you and you'll be the best for these for 10 plays. Rather than say, I'm going to have you on the field for 35 plays and I'm going to be disappointed in your production because I'm trying to justify what I did with you by taking right. you in this round or taking you in this position. They, they are not that kind of franchise. And in the mm -hmm. NFL, where people are constantly trying to prove why they are so smart, the Saints are trying to prove they're smart by understanding once we got what we got, we got to make this work. And however right. we fill guys in. However you need to fit in to make it work, then that's what we'll do. And I think that that's a sign of a, of an, of a forward thinking and progressive franchise. It's absolutely right. Absolutely right. And, and we, we should remember, too, you know, when we think about, you know, draft position and everything like that, that Zach Bond was taken in the third round. Mm -hmm. That means that there's time, like there's time to develop him and, and generate expectations based upon a new skill set or a new portfolio one that differs from what he had coming into the NFL, you know, with Wisconsin as a pass rusher. So he now gets an opportunity to create an entirely new portfolio, 
develop a new skill set and then come in with new expectations once he's ready to be at that, that position. And so I think that that will be another successful and another comfortable position for a guy like Zach Bond, who didn't get an offseason last year to prepare for a position change. You know, kind of embraced, as he said, the Sam role last year, which didn't see the field very much. And then now all of a sudden he's looking at being on the field, you know, 600, 700 snaps. Which would be fantastic in year two. Mm-hmm. Um, let's go to the business side. Marshawn Lattimore's contract gets restructured, frees up some money for the Saints first. Just give me the basic cap implications on what, what was done for Marshawn. Yeah, so we learned uh, more details that it was four void years that were added to the to the restructure so they restructured his fifth year option and they basically took his contract and reduced it to a veteran minimum deal which at his four years in the nfl $990,000. So it took about 9.2 million, spread it out over 2021 evenly through the next 4 years as well, so 5 years of coverage to sort of transition that into a signing bonus and then spread the the expenditure for the team out. So what that basically does is that that ends up saving around 7.4 roughly million dollars for the team and of course they use some of that to sign the draft class and so there's probably around five million dollars remaining available now for the saints let's first deal with what this means for marshawn because Mm -hmm. i don't think that this you know of the four people that we've talked about in in line for renegotiations or extensions um i we i think we had him fourth the way Mm -hmm. things had gone does this keep him in that spot you know, amongst that that tier of of renegotiations, I, I think so. I don't think that. I mean, it, it doesn't affect it too terribly much, if we're being fully honest, right? Like, it still comes down to the decision to extend will still come down to how the team feels about the player and how you know potentially the how the player feels about the team as well, of course, because that has to go both ways. And then, of course, this off season this offseason situation. And so, you know, Marshawn spoke with us yesterday and he talked a little bit about, you know, he did mention the one thing that he said about the situation over the offseason, the arrest, was that he didn't feel like it has, you know, caused any type of, you know, it hasn't delayed any talks or anything like that. I I don't think it has either. Do you? Yeah. No, no. And I think that that's the right choice. I think that's the right choice. I think that maybe you wait to you know, deliver the extension so that you don't cost him money if he ends up suspended after you've given him guarantees, because then his guarantees could be voided mm-hmm. if the suspension comes down. And perhaps there's something they could do contractually to avoid that anyway. But I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, they're just wanting to do right by it. But if you look at the way that they did the 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 um the restructure the four void years that are added onto Marshall and Lattimore's contract carry a avoided or a ghost value of $30 million per year. We saw this something similar with the Taysom Hill restructure. Mm-hmm. Basically, the reason why they did that is because it leaves them open to be able to still negotiate an extension into those years. Because if you're going to restructure him now, nine months from now, he's going to be a free agent in March, right? Like that's, mm-hmm. that's, the, that's the date. So if you restructure a contract that you've already redone within 12 years, you can't negotiate up any months. higher than what's already on the books. Over, over 12 months. Yeah, thank you. Sorry about that. Um, over 12 months, you can't negotiate higher than what's already been agreed upon. So they went super high on those void years so that when they negotiate, there's no ceiling. There's no cap. You know, uh, you know they could have negotiated it as a ten million dollar per year deal, but Marshawn's not going to stick around for ten million dollars per year, and they couldn't have exceeded that within the next twelve months. So it it's very clear that the Saints are continuing to have conversations around extending Marshawn Lattimore. Whether those conversations are actively happening with the player at this time, we don't know, um, and I don't. Th- you know, we won't know until the extension happens. Um, but at this point, there's at least a little bit of confidence to say, well, the Saints aren't out on Marshawn Lattimore by any means, which isn't something that they would do anyway, that they're still leaving these mechanisms in place so they can continue working for it toward an extension. So let's look at the other uh, three. Um, Marcus Williams, Ryan Ramchick, and Teron Armstead. Teron Armstead then, to me, would be the second most tenuous because mm-hmm. of where he is age-wise. Um, yes. The fact that um, his the value of his contract plus his age and the fact that the Saints do have a some depth on the offensive line and, and the potential to be able to move some people into his spot. 
Um, any news on Tehran at this point? Not at this time in terms of whether or not conversations are happening or talks have happened. Uh, but that same structure that they did with Marshall and Lattimore's restructure in terms of making sure that there's a ceiling under which to negotiate, they did the same thing for Toronto Armstead's restructure earlier this offseason. Mm-hmm. So, again, they've left the door open to continue to do it. I think maybe, you know, those two were the two that are most likely to play out 2021 without a new deal. I think those two are probably the most likely. Um Marshall and Lattimore, because you also have the option of a franchise tag again, or you have the option of the franchise tag for him next year at the cornerback position, not super expensive, something you can still work with. Uh, tackle position, much different, much more expensive. And so I think that particularly left tackle. And so I think that that works in favor with when it comes to Marshall and Lattimore. When it comes to Tron Armstead, maybe there's a conversation to be had here about, you know, like you said, his age, his health, things like that, that might raise some questions and they might need to see him through the year before they offer him that extension. That would make sense to me. Um, But as of right now, I mean, it's completely possible that all four of these guys could get extended before the season begins. Um, You know, the only one with really a drop dead deadline here is uh, any type of a deadline here is Marcus Williams, whose contract has to be renegotiated before July 15th. Otherwise, he has to play out on the franchise tag, which isn't a bad thing. It's just that they don't have a choice in terms of continuing to negotiate a contract beyond that point. I mean, that's still almost, you know, we still got a month from that time. Right. Um, I, w- I would imagine that there is some basic framework already in place uh, mm-hmm. from the Saints end and, and certainly from uh, Marcus Williams people that they've submitted what they want. Um, do you think that the likelihood of that there will be a done a deal done by July 15th? And then with Ramchek, uh, certainly we know he's a priority for this team, but as we've talked about before, you could see his lingering into the season if necessary as the Saints continue to fill out roster spots, figure things out, and then knowing that they can come back to Ryan and say, okay, now we've got your money. We're ready to do right. this. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that, you know, Marcus Williams having an actual, um, it's not really a deadline, but having an actual, you know, kind of checkpoint in his negotiations does accelerate the talks with him, obviously. Um, I think that it's like, I don't want to say that it's likely, but I think that I, I wouldn't be surprised to see a deal done with him before July 15th. I mean, that's a, that's a player that they think is as good as his, at his position as any other player on their roster at their position. Like they like, love Marcus Williams and they want to keep Marcus Williams. And I think that that's the right choice because otherwise you go into next year, possibly without Marcus Williams and possibly without Malcolm Jenkins. And then you've, you know, essentially lost half of your secondary at that and point. And possibly without Marshawn Lattimore. And possibly without Marshawn Lattimore. Yep. So absolutely. if you lose so, three fourths of your starting secondary. Yeah. And, and, and we still don't really know about that opposite corner position either. So you right. could be going into 2022 with a completely different defensive backfield. Absolutely. So I, I think that, be, you know, with all of that and knowing that Marcus Williams is a, is a leader, right, along with Malcolm Jenkins uh, in that secondary, I think that. I wouldn't be, he feels like the most likely, I'll say it that way. He feels like the most likely to be extended first just because they want to keep him around. And there's actually a checkpoint here when it comes in, there's a benchmark. Um, Ryan Ramchick, I could see going into camp, maybe at the very beginning of camp uh, or potentially even into September, like we've seen with a few other extensions. Yeah, cause The thing for me with, with Williams also is when you look at the age of the Saints defense in certain spots, because of the age, you know, of Malcolm Jenkins, because mm-hmm. of the age of a Cam Jordan, because of the age of Demario Davis, you can't give up a lot of under twenty-seven-year-old right. um, potential pro, you know, year in and year out Pro Bowlers, and a guy who has gotten better each and every year that he's been with your organization. Right. You don't throw away those kind. And the Saints are big on keeping their own. He's yeah. as valuable a target on that roster on the defensive end as anyone that they have. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely right. I mean, I, I think that's absolutely right. And and you can say the same thing about Ryan Ramchek, of course, right? The offensive line is probably a little bit younger just because Teron Armstead isn't the norm on the offensive line. Um, but, you you know, you look at Eric McCoy and Andrus Pete, who's still a little bit younger. You look at Cesar Ruiz, who's, you know, rel- basically brand new, Landon Young incoming. So you have these younger players on the offensive line. But I still think that 
it, it, even in that case, the conversation is almost the opposite way, right? Like Ryan Ramchick is going to be the stalwart veteran. That's going to be a part of that offensive yeah, line. Your whole famer, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And so, so I think that you know you look at it similarly in terms of the conversation of the importance of that player to the unit. So the Saints are sitting roughly, you say, five million in cap space at this Somewhere point. There. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, that means that they're then, then folks want to fill that space immediately. Folks always want to spend that money <laughs> as soon as that they see there's some available. We know Drake Kirkpatrick has been in for a visit with the Saints, that they flirted with Richard Sherman a bit. The mm-hmm. Kirkpatrick thing feels a little bit more real. How yeah. likely do you think it is that the Saints, the clearly the interest is mutual. Right. Um, it's just going to come down to the dollars at this point, you think? Yeah, I, I think it, it comes down to dollars and it comes down to other teams that are interested because apparently Drake, Drake Kirkpatrick is getting quite a bit of interest around the NFL. Uh, he's already taken a couple of visits, New Orleans being one of them. But I think that, you know, when it comes down to it, he's a schematic fit. His numbers are almost identical in man coverage in 2020 than Janoris Jenkins in 2020 man coverage with the Saints. I mean, they played 219 snaps exactly. They both had two passes defended, one interception and two touchdowns given up. I mean, they both allowed 340 yards in man coverage. Like it's incredible how, you know, similar their numbers are. And so in that he he's a schematic fit. And as Nick pointed out, he also plays, you know, he also played quite a bit of cover four in Arizona and played well there. It also played some of that in Cincy as well. Didn't play it maybe as much as the Saints play it because it's kind of a primary coverage for them. But that sort of skews away some of the concerns that you might have regarding him in zone coverage. We look at his zone coverage numbers because within zone coverage, there's five, four or five different subcategories within that, even more. And the Saints will play them differently than Arizona played them. So maybe the ones that he was more successful in but didn't play as much in Arizona, he would play more of in New Orleans. So I think he's a good schematic fit for the Saints. I personally believe that if the Saints signed him, he would become the assumed starter immediately mm-hmm. next to Marshall Lattimore. doesn't mean that it would be locked up for him. I mean, if Paulson Adebo progresses and develops, he progresses and develops and you don't keep him off the field. But it, it limits the pressure. It lessens the pressure to do so for Paulson Adebo, which I think could actually help his growth. And so I think that it, it's a great fit for the Saints. It just comes down to whether or not Drake or Patrick has you know, options and opportunities elsewhere that are going to give him more than the veteran minimum, which is what I think he would get in New Orleans. He might not want that because that's what he played on last year. Right. Uh, and I think the situations, though, that he's come from in Cincinnati and then Arizona, those are less sound defenses than what he's mm-hmm. what he would have the opportunity to be with in New Orleans. I think his numbers could be better with the Saints than they had yeah. been in other places. But, yeah, look, I'm not going to sweat a man who says I got to take the most money playing a violent game. Right. If that's yeah. what it is, dude. Do you do for your family. As we talked about earlier, ain't nobody looking out for you on the back. Nobody's looking out for you, man. (laughs) Go get your money. Go get get your bag. Get that money, man. (laughs) But it would be great to see him here. Um, But if he doesn't, are there other options that the Saints are really pursuing right now? Or is it just talk still for most of the, the other potential candidates at corner? Yeah, I think for the most part, I mean, like this is a team that has a, a, a room of cornerbacks ready to compete for that role. Right. That, and, and, you know, you probably headed up by the veteran in Patrick Robinson, but you have young guys there, too, like Paul Sandibo, who they drafted this year in the third round. Uh, uh, Keith Washington, who was a camp just superstar last year and really bounced back. Yeah, we and, were surprised that he didn't make yeah. the roster. Right. Yeah. Big time. And so now he's had a year on the practice squad and perhaps continues to develop. I think you have to wait until camp to see that. But, you know, I, I think him, Grant Haley had a great season. I think he would play more inside and outside but you know i think you know all these guys are here to compete right cj garner johnson you know put his name in the in the mix for like the person who could be opposite marshall Lattimore. you know so i think and and you know he has supreme confidence which i think is extremely important at that position and obviously the saints care about very much at that position because you lose a lot as a corner like of no fault of your own it's just it's a losing position. I played that position. I lost all the time. I lost all the time. And it's just part of it's part of what happens. It's you a have natural to have a disadvantage. Sh- That's right. Yeah. You're the one that doesn't know what's coming, <laughs> you know. And so you have this, you know, what makes a good corner is somebody that has the short memory, not just for errors, but for good plays. Right. Like if you go out there and you make a great play, you have to immediately forget that because you have to go out there and do it again. And if you make a bad play or, 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 you know, if you don't make a play, you have to forget that because you need to go and try to make that play the next play and everything. And so it's a tough position to play mentally. Like it's a tough mental position. It's why Marshall Lattimore talks about 
the mentality being what's most important, just as much as the physicality of the position. And so I think that with all of that, uh, you know, it's one of the reasons why veterans become so um, appealing at the position because they have the confidence, particularly guys that have been in the league for nine years, like Kirkpatrick. And, you know, Janoris Jenkins, who was in the league for 10 years, uh, he was 31 when they brought him back or when they when they brought him in from waivers. Patrick Robinson was 31 when they brought him back to New Orleans. They're not afraid of investing in veterans. So I think there are still some players out there. I was sad to see Bashad Breeland head elsewhere. Uh, he ended up signing with Minnesota. But I believe St- Steven Nelson is still in the market, if I remember correctly. But certainly Richard Sherman is who the Saints have, you know, apparently at least had some precursory conversations with ahead of the draft. Yeah, I think if Richard signs, it's going to be as late as possible. He don't want to right. do all the yeah. stuff. You know, yeah. veterans is a certain. I don't want to come to the mini camps. I don't want to do all right. that. I, I can work out on my own. Uh, I'm at his stage. I, I'm signing. He's probably signing a one year deal with anybody, whoever he signs with at this point. Right. There's no rush. Yeah. Not at all. Um, the wide receiver position continues to draw uh, attention. Uh, Golden Tate's name has been mentioned again as a guy mm-hmm. who could take a one million dollar deal as a vet. Uh, I like Golden Tate. I, I watched him for a number of years, but he couldn't really get on the field in, in with the Giants last year. But again, with the Giants' offense, I don't know what's good and bad when you watch that group. It's, it, it was <laughs> right. so inconsistent as a unit. Um, is Golden State a realistic option? Or do you think, that, again, are the Saints content, really, with what they have? And if they need to go get somebody, then they will. But I just don't see that as a as a, as, as a pressing need to go out and find someone that you think you'd have to put in as, he, as a starting type receiver. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I, I think, and, and, and Sean Payton clarified this, mentioned this, and said this again yesterday. He said this several times now, that... He is higher on the options that they have in the room than maybe the general public is, and he's okay with that. And I think that that's absolutely right. I think I'm higher on what's already in the building than a lot of than a lot of folks are that are looking in. But Traquan Smith getting the opportunity to play the position that he was drafted to play, I mean, that's that's a huge boost for him. That's where he averaged 19.8 yards in college before he was drafted by the Saints and had to play in the slot and essentially learn a new position. And he's kind of been relegated to the slot ever since. And we saw him be successful last year when he had to play on the outside without you know, Michael Thomas or, you know, without uh, Emmanuel Sanders with the games that he had to miss. And so I think that, you know, with that, and then you have Marquez Calloway, who's developed in, in, in into, you know, who, who will continue to develop into a weapon. Deontay Harris, whose role grows every season, as we've seen over the past couple of years. So I think that, you know, all of that, um, I think the Saints are pretty comfortable with where they are. And I think you're right. If, if they need somebody, they'll go and get somebody. But I don't think that that's a position that they're interested in saying we have to go and address right now. They would probably if that was the only position that nothing changed with at the moment, then that would make perfect sense. The Saints would just bank the salary cap space to help them out next year. And I think what we're doing too much is judging those receivers based on what you saw in an offense. They will not be playing. Right anymore this is they will be asked to do different things now um and i think we have to allow that to unfold and see what how they're utilized and and we know this james winston has had in his time he's been able to utilize the entire group of receivers that he's had right. we've seen him use his tight end we've seen him use both outside receivers we've seen him go in the slot with tampa drew couldn't do some of those things mm-hmm. and there was also just the familiarity of what you're really confident in you right. don't have that barrier now. You don't have an expectation. James doesn't have an expectation of what any of these guys can do. He doesn't have a relationship where I'm only throwing to this one guy. Right. So the potential is there. We, I think we should let it play out because we've seen Sean Payton do this before. We've seen him cobble mm-hmm. together receiver, receiving groups with less talent than I think that is on this roster right now. Yeah. I think there is some quality. Like you said, Deontay Harris, the potential is there for him to do so many things. The Traquan Smith, there's so much potential. The Marquez Callaway, his physicality, the ability to to get 50-50s, which the Saints did not – don't do a lot of 50-50s. Right. Because that's not Drew's thing. It was He does not take that risk. So with a guy with an arm like Jameis, with the ability to go downfield and take a few 50-50s and let your receivers win some of those battles – I'm not, yeah, I'm not in a rush to see them add anybody at this point. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. I think you're absolutely right, and I completely agree. I think you have to see how this all how this all shakes out, and there's a lot of talent at that position right now that maybe isn't, you know, it's not Julio Jones and A.J. Brown talent, but 
it's still talent that's there that I think is just being undervalued and maybe undermined a little bit. And there are also names that we just don't know yet, right? Like, you know, does Jalen McCleskey surprise everybody? Does uh, Kawan Baker come in and make an immediate impact even as a seventh round selection? He might be a seventh round selection, but he's also the first wide receiver that the Saints have drafted since Traquan Smith. They haven't invested draft capital at that position at all. And so I think all of that has to be taken into consideration and you wait and see how it works out during camp. And then if the Saints need to address after that, there's going to be a whole pool of players to become available before week one and maybe you see them dive into that or potentially hit the trade market in that situation as well i mean outside of tampa last year tell me the team that had the best receiver group of the most recent world super bowl champions there hasn't been like an outstanding group of pro bowl receivers running up on people in the in the postseason right what yeah team the one is that? Yeah, there's really, I mean, there's not one, right? Like, you know, probably you would look at Seattle as having one of the best tandems. They haven't done it, uh, not recently. Uh, Minnesota had the, one of the best tandems last year. They didn't get anywhere uh, because their defense, right? Like, it doesn't matter what you can produce on the offensive side if you can't stop anybody on the defensive side. So you have all these. The last time that you saw a move maybe help, you know, at that position, maybe help propel a team to a wide, excuse me, to a Super Bowl was uh, the 49ers trading for Emmanuel Sanders. Mm-hmm. But even at that point, it's just kind of... Um, that was a team carried by its defense, that, too. Yeah, exactly. And, and the run game in particular as well. And George Kittle was the primary receiver. Right. So, I mean, even in Kansas City, when you look at them, it's Tyreek Hill is the receiver, the one receiver who right. you really go to, and then you're dealing with tight end uh, primarily. Travis so, Kelsey, yeah. Travis Kelsey. So it's, you don't see teams that are, uh, that are winning that have you know four and five Pro Bowl receivers. It's just not going on. So you don't need that if you can be consistent in moving the yards and the Saints best seasons. Still, we know they've never had a season with two wide Pro Bowl wide receivers. Never. So it's not something that you have to worry about. I just don't think it. Um, Especially when you've got, again, when you have an Alvin Kamara back there who can do all of those things as well. Um, It it can be a receiver by committee thing and you're fine. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the last thing I want to get to is, is Quan Alexander. And every time Quan pops in the news, people get excited and they, you know, and his rehab from his Achilles injury is going well. And people say, go ahead and sign him. I am again of the, of the thought, if Quan's healthy, he'll be healthy in week four. He'll be right. healthy in week six. There's not going to be a whole bunch of people rushing to his phone because of his injury history. He, there aren't a lot of teams that he wants to play for. Um, I think that if the saints come calling, he'll be there. But there's yeah. no need for them to jump early on the Quan Alexander train when you've got these other players like a Zach Bond that you've got to teach, like you know the, the, all these new guys, and you're trying to adjust. I can't trust that Quan is going to go out there and get hurt on day six of training camp, and I've wasted that time. Let me see if I need him later on, but I'm not in a rush to bring him in. Yeah, and I don't think that any NFL team signs Quan Alexander based upon what he's doing on video in a controlled environment that they have no control over. They're going to bring him in for a tryout. Like any team that any team that would be willing to sign him is going to bring him in for a tryout first, put him through their ringer, make sure that they feel good, make sure that he gets cleared by medical doctors because to my knowledge he still hasn't been cleared to play at all. So there's this other part of the conversation, right? That yeah, he's out there and he's doing these things, but it's all a part of rehabilitation. Like Dr. Reef is a rehabilitation therapist. Like that's what he does and he's incredible at it. Don't get me wrong, but he's not, you know, um, he, he is a part of the process is what I mean. And he's a very important part of the process, but he's a part of the process to getting a player back on the field. So that process is not done. So therefore, no one is going to be signing him at this time while he's still recovering from his injury. And again, until an NFL team can lay eyes on him in person in their environment, which they control running the drills that they want him to run and seeing what he can do in their environment. There's no rush to sign him there. It's only been five months. Like it's only been five months since his injury. It takes a little bit more time than that. I mean, now we've seen players get cleared in eight months, nine months. You look at Sheldon Rankins, but we're not there yet. <laughs> and we're also talking about, you know, Sheldon Rankins on the defensive line with an Achilles, you're doing explosion in short space. Right. But with running with the linebacker, you're talking about being able to shift, turn, you know, pursue all yep. of those things, start and stop, accelerate, go forward, go backwards. That's that's it's a lot of stress on that Achilles. It just mm-hmm. is. And yeah, if he's available, come if, and you need him come October, November, 
I think the phone will, I mean, I think he'll still be there. I just, yeah. I can't see teams being in a rush to grab somebody coming off of that injury with a history of injuries and right. his age. All yeah. three of those things mean that he's he's not the priority for a single team. If you're going to take him, he's to fill a gap at some point. He's not someone you're counting on at, at, at this stage in his career. Yeah. And, and again, just like you said, right, whoever that team is might not necessarily be a team that, that he wants to play for. Everything. So that limits the pool. Yeah, because if you're going to come back from this and you're going to go out there and take that hit, you're not doing a 14 that's probably going to go forward 13. Right. You want a chance to win. Right. You didn't leave the 49ers and come to the Saints, you know what I mean, for a chance to lose. You came to the Saints and you want to come home and you want to come win. So right. the winning teams that are out there, they probably have good linebacker depth. Yeah. <laughs> so it limits really where you where Quan could go. I mean, I just think that he doesn't have hand as as Seinfeld would say. He has no hands yes. yep. in this deal. Um, I, I wish him the best. I mean, you'd love to see him back if he's full speed and they need him, but he feels like superfluous at this at this stage to even think about. Yeah, it's too early. It's just too soon. It's too soon. More time needs to pass. Teams need to learn more about with their roster, and he still needs to be cleared to play. What are the biggest takeaways that Sean Payton would like you think would like to have coming out of minicamp? I think coming out of minicamp, probably a good understanding of where Cesar Ruiz is in his development, where Zach Bond is in his position change, and then probably the advantage now of getting to see both Jameis Winston and Taysom Hill in the facility talking, working, associating with 100% because they have 100% attendance player wise throughout this minicamp, which is great. And so getting them there and getting them and, and being able to see them interacting and see the leadership in action, I think all of that's there. And I also think it maybe gives you a little bit of a gauge on where Michael Thomas is in his recovery as well, which I think is a really big uh, storyline for 2021 is, you know, how is he going to be able to bounce back? And so I think you get a good idea of sort of where he is in his recovery process throughout all of that. And then, of course, getting an opportunity to get your rookies involved and sort of get everybody introduced and, uh, and integrated into the system. Oh, and been, the coaching staff. Oh, the coaching staff changes as well. It's been interesting, though, that we've heard a lot more comments out of like uh, out of Alvin Kamara who says, you know, I'll help whoever the quarterback is. I'll do my thing. Whatever. We don't really hear a lot about my, from Mike, and Mike, who, who is very communicative at times, particularly when it comes to his position in the league and how he's perceived. Mm -hmm. We have not really heard a bunch out of him this offseason. And even coming into to training camp, it's not there have not been a lot of quotes coming out of Mike Thomas. Yeah, he, he has been very much in the recovery space over the course of the offseason in terms of making sure that like he gets right. Um, there's media availability through the rest of the week. Mm -hmm. I can't say whether or not we'll hear from him, uh, but he he would be a name that. You know, it, this would be a time, right? To where, like, if you were going to hear from him, this would be the time that you would hear from him is over the course of this week. We'll see if he ends up being available uh, during that time, which could mean that, you know, if he's not available, it could be that he's, you know, talking to coaches or, you know, what I mean? he could be right. doing any number of things there. But he's in the facility and he's there. They have 100% attendance. And so I think that at this point, we might be closer and closer hearing from him. But before this point, his entire focus has been pretty much on getting right. And I'm excited to see where the Saints are. I want to see where they come out of this camp. I'm, I know folks continue to just kind of, I, I think there's a lot of Saints fans and you see it in the, in the Twitter sphere who are anxious. There's a lot of anxiety mm -hmm. starting to build. I'm not nearly as anxious as maybe I should be. Uh, do you feel like you should be more anxious? I don't really feel very anxious, uh, but I, I do, I do feel the anxious tendencies and the anxiety from other you know, people, particularly fans and, and mm -hmm. things like that. Uh, I think, you know, we also are trained to look at it, look at this very subjectively and try to or objectively and try to figure out sort of, you know, where the stories are, talk about the stories and kind of have a, a little bit of a disconnected uh, attachment uh, to to the franchise in a in a personal manner. And so I think that that probably feeds into to it a little bit. But, you know, the 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 anxiousness around this is is for me, the excitement around a new chapter and a new era of this team and this organization that is undergoing massive change right now, massive change. And I don't, but I don't feel like they're going to suffer in the midst of doing it. I, I think that they will be uh, more, more successful than anticipated in terms of their ability to readjust and recalibrate despite the losses of this offseason. Yeah, I think the, the massive changes are one thing, but I think folks need to understand and keep focused on 
the change of purpose and mission mm-hmm. is is not there. The right. saints are still of the same purpose. Yep. Just it's, it's just looks different. And I think that that's what you want to see out of your organization is that consistency. And the saints are providing a level of consistency that that gives me enough pause. And then when you look at the perspective of watching what's going on around the rest, the rest of the NFC in, in, in yeah. general and seeing the upheaval that's across the entire NFC, that I don't look at a single team outside of Tampa Bay, which has been relatively stable this offseason, and see anyone that makes me feel like they've got it under control. You know yeah. what I mean? Like that you look at them and you say, oh, they've got to figure it figured out. Not the Packers. You know what I mean? <laughs> not the 49ers. Right. Not the Seahawks. Not There's not a single team that you would say is in contention in the NFC that, that you feel 100% or even 85% in because there's enough question marks. Tampa's the only one. and that, But Tom Brady is a question mark at this age. Does he continue to yeah. do his thing? But outside of that, you have to feel good about where the Saints are, relatively speaking, to the rest of these organizations. Because even with their change, there's no appearance of chaos or uncertainty. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Everything is still very much glued together, staying together. Nothing's falling apart. The sky is not falling. They've made some the, the, the changes that they have made in some cases they've improved particularly over on the coaching side I think they made some really massive um, additions where there were all of a sudden vacancies and uh, you know we're, we as we watched the Sean Payton coaching tree finally start to, to take root uh, but I, I think that you know this is a team that is content uh, not content excuse me is uh, intent on remaining competitive and remaining cohesive as they as they go in and i think that you know in order for you to be able to do that then you have to keep the walls together like you have to keep the walls up you can't blow anything out you can't do anything like that you you have to make sure that you are all on the same page and that everybody is bought in otherwise that cohesion's not going to be there adaptability that's that's what the saints mm-hmm. are their adaptability in practice as a business organization and as a team and uh, i think that that give that should give folks confidence um, going into the rest into the rest of the mini camps, into training camp, and, and into the season, um, unless you see some unless you see some major injuries, and that's what you cross your fingers for every year in the NFL. Um, I think that this is still a very competitive team with a very competitive coach and an organization that is willing to do what it takes to keep them that way. Absolutely. And I'd rather be in that spot than in ninety percent of the situations of fan bases around this league. Yeah. All right, that'll do it for this week. I think we've covered it all. Um, Ross, please tell the folks, as usual, all the things that you're doing and how they can keep in touch with you, man. Yeah, absolutely. Easiest way is to check out um, check me out on Twitter, at Ross Jackson Nola, N-O-L-A. You can find the Locked on Saints podcast. Try to tweet it out every day. Uh, available wherever you get your podcasts, as well as over on YouTube now, is the video component. And then, uh, you know, all the writing over at CanalStreetChronicles.com as well. And every Wednesday here with... Uh, DG here with uh, the the Dome Patrol. Always glad to be here with you, man. And this is always a highlight of my week. And I always love these conversations. So I, I appreciate you keeping it going. Yep. And, and beyond that, you know, I just appreciate the friendship, man, because this, yeah, this has been it, it just it continues to grow. And, and mm-hmm. what we do continues to grow. And it's just it's yeah. awesome to see how we've each like every time one of us hits a milestone, then another one comes and boom, 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 boom. Mm-hmm. And it's just um, <laughs> I, I couldn't be happier for you. And, and, and I know you feel the same way. So I just appreciate that. And it's good to Absolutely. have a brother in the business um, that, that I can rely on and, and, and also just throw shit, shit at, you know, like yeah, right. <laughs> when it's bad, you're just like, man, you know, right. and somebody's there who just gets it too. And, and yeah. I think that that comes across and I think people enjoy that. So, um, and I enjoy it, even if the people don't, but they listen. So I'm a grad, I'm glad for that. They do listen. And I'm thankful for everybody who does. Y'all know how to follow me at DM Grub, Instagram, Twitter, and the website HITP with DG.com. And you can also check out my stuff if you are a baseball fan at MLBbro.com, um, where we cover black and brown ball players there. And it's it's really unique. It's something that hasn't been done before. And uh, I think you should get on board with it right now because we're going to be big in the future. It's awesome, man. All right, until the next time, for Ross Jackson, I am David Grubb, and we are the Dome Patrol on Hard to Pay. Hard to pay.